0: So we've got a huge guest on tonight, if any of you have seen Tom on Joe Rogan, it's got over 3 million views and it really ties into what we've been doing here. Our first ever podcast guest, Jamie Morgan Cain, served 34 years in California prison, including time with um, Tex Watson, Manson Mm -hmm. murderer. he did meet Charles Manson in prison, we've recently interviewed Stephen Kinzer, Poisoner in Chief about the Gottlieb book, mm-hmm. MKUltra Ultra, mind control, and when I asked Stephen about Charles Manson, he really didn't have much to say, which is why I'm delighted.
1: Yeah, hey, I, <laughs> I didn't you think he would.
0: You have you have plenty to say, so thank you very much for coming on, Tom.
1: Sure thing, sure thing. Happy to be here.
0: There's going to be a link in the description box below this video to get your book worldwide and any uh, links you want to send me for your socials will be down there as well okay so just to get started then a lot of my audience is in the uk um how where did charles
1: Manson come from uh you mean what part of the united states or? yeah how did how did it all begin he he, he was born in uh there's two stories, either either Ohio or West Virginia. Uh, I'm not sure which, but they border each other. Uh, he came out of that kind of environment in the early 1930s. His mother was a petty criminal, sometime prostitute. He wasn't sure who his father was. And uh, she gotten arrested a few times, and he was raised by various relatives. When she'd get out of jail, she'd take him back and then kind of drift a little bit and he didn't have a stable childhood. Uh, by the time he was about 12 or 13, he was committing crimes and uh, pretty much entered the justice, uh, the juvenile detention reformatory system at 12, and never really got out of it. I mean, he was in federal institutions through his death almost because all of the crimes he committed as a kid were felony. Uh, you know, they were federal crimes, not local and uh, as an adult as well so he was kind of a product of the you know the jail the penal system
0: and in your book chaos charles manson and the cia and on your podcast you detail how even though manson was getting arrested increasingly yeah, he, he always managed to get out of jail
1: how, well, was, how did that come was, about? There was a two year period uh, when that happened, I mean prior to 1967 he was actually getting violated in a very conventional way so if he was paroled for a crime and he violated his parole by not having an appointment with his parole officer or not informing his parole officer that he was leaving the state or something, they would send him right back to prison, prison and that's how it's normally done and that's what happened in 1960-61, he had violated his parole for uh, I think not reporting for meetings and also for some unapproved travel, they put him back in to serve his original sentence which was for um, stealing uh, a letter from a mailbox with a check which is a federal offense and he was in prison until 1967, March, When he was released in March of 1967 in Los Angeles, he immediately violated his parole by going up to the Bay Area without permission, and that's when everything kind of changed in the handling or treatment of Charles Manson. If it had been seven years earlier, they would have sent him back to prison for that, but not only did they not do that, they assigned him to a parole study program in San Francisco called the San Francisco Project and to a parole officer named Roger Smith who was studying drugs and criminology uh, at at UC Berkeley. And uh, from then on, Manson kind of became who we all are familiar with today, this kind of guru-like leader who had this magical ability to control young people and believed that he was the reincarnation of Christ and the devil combined. Uh, That all happened in under, that transformation took place in under a year where Manson went from petty low life con artist to hippie guru although he hated hippies, he he didn't call himself a hippie and uh, during those two years every time he got arrested which was I think maybe a dozen times, uh, he would be taken down to the uh, county jail and immediately, once or twice held overnight, immediately released with charges dropped. There was always an intervention of some kind of mysterious force or person or or entity or institution that allowed him to go And, and that was the kind of rabbit hole I fell down when I got a magazine assignment 21 years ago in 1999 just to do a story about the case and the murders for what was then going to be the 30th anniversary and When I started discovering these anomalies, like his get-out-of-jail-free card, I thought, what was really going on here? So I ended up doing a kind of reconstruction of his life out of prison, in prison, and the the crimes, and I found out that a lot of what we'd been told was not true. And it was um, deliberately, uh, most of it made up by the prosecutor who became famous with uh, the case and then the best-selling book, Helter Skelter.
0: So there's been horrendous experiments on prisoners over the years, from you know um, horrible things like the taking of the blood from the prisoners when Governor uh, Bill Clinton in Arkansas was they were selling all this blood with the with the AIDS, uh, HIV positive and hepatitis, and it's like prisoners are treated as institutional use; they're not human beings. Yeah. Now, yeah. now this 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 plays into what you've been researching because certain experiments were made on prisoners. Um, Do you think that was the case with Manson?
1: Well that's what uh, my book looks at and I present a pretty compelling case that it was possible if not likely but I could never find anything um, strong enough to make me comfortable saying it's absolutely what happened. And that's you know one of the criticisms of my book is it doesn't have a final answer Um, But I think what I hope it does is it makes people rethink, especially if they're interested in this case, but not just this case, but what the United States government was doing in the 60s that a lot of people had no idea they were doing to people like Manson. Manson actually became exactly what the government was trying to create secretly through a program called MKUltra, which is a mind control person, someone who had the ability to get people to kill on command without any recollection of being programmed or told to do it through using drugs, uh, sensory deprivation, hypnosis, a combination of all of these. And Manson magically learned how to do that in 1967, right after he'd gotten out of prison, and while he was kind of under the mentorship of uh uh, 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 his parole officer who was doing research into these drugs and their effect on people's minds, memory and uh, criminal behaviour. It's, it's kind of complicated and hard to explain in a nutshell without sounding a little nuts but I think in the book we lay it out very slowly and we've got 60 pages of um, footnotes at the back where all the documents that we found or I found are, are uh, referenced.
0: Yeah, it's a push to get that 60 though didn't you Tom?
1: Yeah, 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 I sure do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the people watching uh, videos on this channel are mostly hip to MK Ultra. Okay. And uh, you know, recently watching the Gottlieb um, podcast as well, I learned so much. That was absolutely fascinating. So, how did Charles Manson build the family?
1: Well, he um, basically recruited runaway girls. Uh, He knew how to kind of appeal to their vulnerabilities, their insecurities. Uh, His first few followers were all, you know, age 15 to 19 or 20. And once he had a little harem of them, about three or four, um, he was able to attract men through them. And they were in San Francisco, you know, at the height of the summer of love, uh, the summer of 67 and the hate. And he kind of roamed around the neighborhoods with these women following him, and they weren't allowed to speak unless spoken to, and they did whatever his commands were, and um, about late 67, early 68, again in violation of his parole, he drifted to Los Angeles and built a commune there at the Spahn Ranch outside of L.A. and for a while they stayed with uh, the Beach Boy drummer Dennis Wilson who he had kind of seduced into his group at his mansion in the Pacific Palisades. Um, And then they became increasingly criminal so that by 1969 they started murdering Um, and uh, Manson. A lot of people think Manson never actually killed anyone, but, I mean, he was involved in in the killing of a a guy named Shorty Shea, the ranch hand. He he, he helped knife him to death. Uh, But the other murders, the official story is uh, he commanded his followers to kill the the residents of the house where Sharon Tate was staying. Uh, He, again, officially was not supposed to know who lived there. He just sent his followers up there to kill it. To incite this race war called Helter Skelter, um, and by that time there were roughly 30 people that were living in the group called the family, the Manson family, at the Spahn Ranch.
0: Before we get to the gruesome murders, do you believe then that the CIA? I think it might have been Kinzer who said that they tried to purchase the whole world supply of LSD and as they released this through Timothy Leary and Ken Casey, un- unwittingly they were buying this stuff from the feds. Oh yeah. That this then sparked or uh, played a big role in sparking the counterculture, the hippie movement.
1: Yeah, so I haven't read Kenzer's book, but is, does he say it was deliberate that the, the CIA, once they got all that LSD, that they wanted to create a counterculture or, it was unwittingly done because it leaked out from the labs and their their stockpiles.
0: All he stated was that the CIA wanted to know if it was a mind control drug,
1: and yeah. then
0: hence they had to experiment on the public, and that's yeah. how it came. That's how it came out.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's what I mean. I focused really on one doctor named Louis J. West, Jolly West, only because he crossed paths with Manson in the hate, right when Manson turned into the perfect MKUltra operative. Uh, And Jolly West had been working since 1952 when MKUltra was created by Alan Dulles, Dulles, uh, the head of the CIA at the time, uh, to to use LSD, uh, hypnotism, other drugs, some drugs we don't even know the names of, in combination to see if they could get people to, you know, um, commit uh, acts that are against their moral code, commit acts and be amnesic afterward, if they could induce insanity in people without their knowledge, and they began doing these experiments on, um, oh hang on, I just might have lost you. I'm right here, can you still hear me? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just yeah, yeah. Uh, see <laughs> So they uh, began the experiments in uh, prisons and uh, military bases and West correspondence, which I found, which is kind of at the basis of a lot of my, uh, my hypothesis in my book, talked about 1953 or 4 having to take their experiments out beyond uh, the military base where he had begun them and put them to practical use in the field, meaning using them uh, on the, the American public. And that's exactly what they did. They started testing on people in cities. They set up safe houses, bordellos. That were actually CIA labs. They had a, something called Operation Midnight Climax in San Francisco from like '64 to '67, where prostitutes would lure Johns to these apartments, and the apartments had two two-way mirrors, and the Johns would get down with LSD through uh, in drinks, through aerosol, and then the scientists would study their behavior, record their behavior, uh, and this just got. Uh, crazier and crazier until the program actually ended in 1972. Okay, so here is the
0: history of Manson and a key player is going to be Tex Watson, what do you know about Tex's history?
1: Well Tex Watson was uh, from Texas, he he was a football player, a good athlete, a relatively good student, one little brush with the law when he was in college he stole some typewriters, it was more of a fraternity prank. And he drifted out to L.A., dropped out of college in 67 and um, was working as a wig salesman. And then he started selling drugs. He wanted to be an actor originally, like so many people that come out here. And he met the group, met Manson, and became, you know, one of Manson's strong arm enforcers. And the night of um, the Tate murders, the first night of murders, he was the one who brought the three women to the house and kind of oversaw the, the, the horrible slaughter that took place and on the second night uh, at the LaBianca household across town it was him and one of the original women and another women, woman and again the official story was these people were killed uh, and the hope was that the police and the American public would think the Panthers had killed these wealthy white people and turn against the African-American community there'd be this race war and Manson's philosophy and theory was that uh, the blacks would actually win the race war wipe out all the whites and during that time Manson would have his family hidden in a secret hole in the desert that he had found in Death Valley and when the blacks had become victorious then he and his family would emerge from their hole and take over the globe, um, enslave the blacks again, because Manson said that the whites were smarter, and then repopulate the world with a perfect race, white race of Manson's offspring. Um, that's kind of the helter-skelter theory in a nutshell. And if people read the book, I, I raise questions about whether that was really the motive of the murder uh, murders. And... Um, At the very least, I'll say this: uh, I know that Manson never believed that. Uh, I do think some of the followers have become convinced that this was all true, but I think there were a lot of other possibilities, uh, other reasons for for why these people were killed and how they were killed and what kind of uh, led to it all. Before we get to Tate, then,
0: what acts of violence did the family commit in the beginning when they crossed over? to that kind of behavior?
1: Well, the first violent well, Manson would actually, was pretty violent towards his followers in addition, in, you know, to making people have sex with not only him, he would order who to have sex with who but, you know, he was basically raping women and some of them young girls uh, and he would beat up some of the followers. But the, the, the violence that they became infamous for was the, the first, was a shooting of a African-American drug dealer over a drug deal gone wrong that that Manson committed he he actually thought he'd killed this guy but uh, the guy survived the shooting and that was about a month before the Tate LaBianca murders that was the first known you know um, homicidal act that you know was intended to be a homicide and then after that there was a murder of a musician named Gary Himman who lived in Topanga, and he had kind of befriended the family. Again, there's two or three different theories about why he was killed by the family. And what I found in my research in my book is the official one doesn't hold up. And again, the problem is there were so many lies told and so many of the records have been destroyed. I'm not sure we're ever going to find out why all these things really happened. And the goal of my reporting in my book ended up becoming showing what how the official story doesn't hold up and falls apart and then presenting evidence about, well, was it because of hypothesis A, B or C and, and then let the readers decide, which actually I think works. A lot of the people like coming to their own conclusions. I mean, judging, I, I get lots and lots of emails from people with what they think are uh, is the final answer. You know, I still have, still doing reporting on this and I'm just trying to decide what to do next but I'm still coming across exciting new finds, and uh, if there's another book, hopefully it'll be more conclusive. (laughs) Okay, so most young people
0: are familiar with Manson. A lot of young people watch these videos, and perhaps they may may not be familiar with the the names I'm about to ask next. Could you just explain who were Sharon Tate, uh, Roman
1: Polanski, and what was their relationship? Well, Sharon Tate was kind of the classic golden girl from California, although she actually wasn't from California. She was from Texas originally, and she was an army brat. Her father was in military intelligence. He moved the family around the world when he had different assignments. But when she was about 15 or 16, she started entering beauty contests, and she was blonde, blue-eyed, and by all accounts, um, it wasn't just that she was really beautiful, but you know, I, I did this reporting for 20 years. I talked to, I don't know, I should say maybe hundreds of people who knew Sharon and, and dozens who were either very close to her or actually relatives. I never heard a bad thing about her. I mean, everybody just said she was the kindest, most gentle person in the world. She was an up-and-coming actress, and she was actually... Engaged to a hairstylist named Jay Sebring, who was at the time would have become who we now know as Vidal Sassoon or Sassoon, whatever his name is. He was a very um, successful uh, innovator in, in men's hair, and uh, he cut all the movie stars' hairs in, in West Hollywood. He was a real playboy, and he and Sharon ended up as a couple. And then Roman Polanski came onto the scene, uh, and right before he made Rosemary's Baby, the, the movie that kind of made him a global, globally recognized director, uh, he met Sharon, and Sharon left Jay for Roman. They got married in, I think it was January of 68, and Jay stayed their friend, and they were kind of like the golden couple of Hollywood. Um, you know, they lived in the Hollywood Hills uh, at this house where the murders happened, Cielo Drive at the top of Benedict Canyon. And it was, you you would go in there any night of the week. It'd be Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, the Mamas and the Papas, uh, kind of every cross-cultural group uh, at the height of the 60s. It was kind of the focal point. And she was kind of the hippie queen of that world, and he was a little dwarf king. And um, then... She got pregnant, he went to the UK, he was doing research on a a movie that he ended up not making, someone else made it called Day of the Dolphin, Uh, but he was doing revisions of the script, and they were um, thinking of filming it over there and casting it, and while he was gone, uh, Sharon, at about eight and a half months pregnant, was murdered on August 8th of 69 in the house. And J.C. Bring, her former boyfriend, was with her. Uh, And then another couple, uh, Wojciech Warkowski, who was a Polish aspiring screenwriter, friend of um, Romans from Poland, and his girlfriend, uh, coffee heiress, uh, Abigail Folger. And then a fifth kid, an uh, 18-and-a-half-year-old high school kid just graduated named Stephen Perrin, who happened to be visiting the caretaker in the back house, were all slaughtered by the group that night. And... um, I don't know if your people if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was popular over there, the Tarantino movie. Oh yes. yes. Yeah, I mean he did. Tarantino did a really good job of depicting that whole era and Sharon's life and Hollywood. I I think personally, but I hope everybody knows that the movie didn't end. I mean, the true life events didn't end the way that he depicted them in the movie.
0: So you previously said that there was some element of abuse between Polanski and Sharon, and there was perhaps a
1: video? Yeah, well that's actually interesting you ask about that because, um, so you, we sell, the book was published here in the United States by one publisher, Little Brown, and uh, we sold foreign rights in a bunch of different countries, including the UK, and um, I have to be a little careful when I talk about this. the the publication of the book in the UK had much more strident, um, your country has much more strident defamation and libel laws, and we had to modify some of the content of the UK version for the book, um, particularly uh, the depiction of Roman and Sharon's relationship, because what I found out was... um, even though they seem like the king and queen of Hollywood they, they ha- there was a lot of trouble in the marriage and what you read in the book um was actually watered down unless you get the American version. Um, uh, Roman was pretty bad to bad to Sharon. he had a lot of demons <clears throat> and it it's not relevant, I don't believe, to what happened at the end, you know and and the crime, but I was trying to get a picture in the book of what their lives were like and what the world was like uh, in that limited amount of time. So uh, the the videotape you're talking about was something that the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, had told me about in our first meeting. Um, Not to go into too much detail with this, but the very first time I met Vince Bugliosi, uh, again, to set it up, I I was doing a magazine article in 1999, and he agreed to be interviewed for the article, and I went to his house for about six hours. And he uh, was a great interview. you know, he, he had all the details at his fingertips. But I also realized that, you know, he'd written Helter Skelter, and there have been other books about the case, many, many articles, news programs, and he wasn't giving me anything new, and I wanted some, something about the case that had never been reported before. I was kind of looking for an angle. So at the end of the interview i said to him is there anything you can tell me off the record that uh won't come back to you but would give me some kind of fresh insight into what happened you know something that you know about that's never been published and he hesitated for a minute and then he said okay turn them off i I had two tape recorders already had always had two tape recorders for important interviews in case one broke so i turned them off and then he told me about this videotape, the existence of this videotape that had been taken um, from the Polanski house about three days after the murders and uh, the police found it hidden in a loft and he writes about it in his book, he says because there were rumors that Roman was making films at the house and you know all kinds of rumors happened when when the crimes originally happened because people were starved for information and just started gossiping and speculating and, um, when the police looked at the videotape, according to events in Helter Skelter, it was just a film of Roman and Sharon making love and the police put it back in the loft in the house. So when Roman visited the house for the first time, a few days after the murders, uh, and Bugliosi writes this, the first thing he did in the house was to go up and go kind of surreptitiously take the videotape and put it under his jacket so he would have it, um, what Bugliosi told me that day uh, at his house was, in fact, the truth was, the video was of Sharon uh, being, well, let's just say, two men who they couldn't identify having sex with Sharon against her will, and clearly Roman's directing it, because you could hear Roman's voice telling Sharon what to do, and she's resisting. And um, he said that he didn't want to put that in the book because he wanted to protect her. And I thought, and I was a little naive, more naive then, I said, it seems like that's kind of important information because the first suspect of any crime when it's a spouse is the other spouse. No matter how good their marriage might look, um, they're the first person the police look at. So if you're seeing that he would do something like that to his wife, Uh, I think it should have been maybe explored a little bit more. And not only wasn't it, but it it was lied about and and hidden. And as it turned out, um, I was intrigued by that, but I wasn't that interested in it, except in the fact that I thought if they changed this, what else might they have changed about the narrative? And that led me into the path that transformed all of my reporting from being a, a Three-month magazine assignment to a 20-year job to try to find out what else was changed and why it was changed. Uh, I never found out whether or not Buliosi was telling me the truth that day, because when your when your listeners read the book, they'll see that Buliosi lied a lot. Uh, he's dead now. I never, to this day, don't know if he he told me that, if he just invented that story, and for what reason or if it is true, I'm actually inclined to believe it is true, but I could never corroborate it, I could never find anybody else to tell me in the police department or anywhere that that's what that tape was, but in the end, uh, I mean it was like a red herring, it didn't matter to me too much because I found out that Bugliosi committed much larger crimes uh, in the prosecution where he had witnesses lying about their relationships with Manson, Uh, about evidence, um, and when I took a lot of my findings about Vince Bugliosi's corruption to the man who had been his uh, assistant prosecutor on the case, uh, he said that he thought this information could possibly overturn the verdicts, because it showed that um, they hadn't, the most notorious killers, among the most notorious killers in American history hadn't gotten a fair trial, and no matter what, every citizen deserves a fair trial that hasn't happened. The book came out a year ago. Um, And, you know, as a journalist, I have no take. Uh, I I think everybody deserves a fair trial. Uh, I just let the chips, I want the chips to fall where they may and let the justice system pick up the pieces and and pursue it. So I feel like I've done my job, although I am still looking for more. (laughs) Okay,
0: before we get to the day in question then of the Tate, murders there must have been a build-up to Manson making that decision could you describe what the build-up was please okay I'm sorry to the tape murders yeah before the murders in the house yeah well this is about some, pro- some kind of build-up from Charles Manson to make that decision
1: yeah well this is the problem is the official version is that Manson started getting more and more paranoid uh, because the african-american drug dealer who he thought he killed. He also mistakenly thought he was a Black Panther, Uh, and the story in in Helter Skelter is he was really scared that the Panthers were going to attack his group at the Spawn Ranch, and he wanted, you know, this race war to happen, so he decided that he had prophesied to his followers that it would happen, but it wasn't happening fast enough. So after the shooting of Bernard Crow, which was the first week of July of 69, they became more militant, the group became more militant, more, more armed, and then by uh, the first week or second week of August, in, in Bugliosi's version, Manson just decided he had to do something to get the race war going, to make helter Skelter happen, so that um, he would end up, you know, ruling the world like he wanted to after the the whites have been uh, massacred by the Blacks. So um, he chose this house on Cielo Drive uh, Benedict Canyon, according to the official version, because Terry Melcher, a record producer who was Doris Day, the famous American actress's son, had spurned Manson, uh, had led Manson on to believe that he was going to give Manson a recording deal. Manson was an aspiring rock musician and then had changed his mind. So Manson in the official version had chosen that house because it symbolized uh, uh, the upper class, white, successful, Hollywood, beautiful people. Cause he knew that Terry used to live there but didn't live there anymore. But he picked that house to be the site of a massacre that would be blamed on the Panthers. So that's kind of was the buildup in the official version. Um, Uh, They wrote pig and blood on on the front door. The second night, the house of the LaBianca couple was chosen. That was across town. Uh, And this couple had no relationship with show business. They they were well-to-do, but he was a grocery store chain owner. Um, Those killings were just as horrific with, you know, dozens and dozens of stab wounds. And uh, they carved "war" on Lino, uh, the father Lino Labianca's stomach, left a, a fork in his throat, um, and put more blood writing on the wall: "Death to pigs." Helter-skelter on the refrigerator. Rise, uh, and then the race war didn't happen. So it's it's hard to get into on a podcast with limited time, but uh, I present a lot of evidence that none of these murders were committed to start a race war but there were other motivations behind them and um, again I let the reader decide why the build-up of the violence did happen and whether or not it might have been being provoked by outside sources uh, and not Manson himself. So can you take us through it then what happened at the Tate
0: House like how the order was given what the crime scene looked like
1: Oh, boy, you want to hear the grisly details. Well, um, the Ma- Manson dispatched Tex Watson, Linica Sabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins, uh, just after sunset, August 8th, Friday night, um, there was a heat wave up to the house where Terry Melcher used to live. And it was an isolated house, you know, at the top of the Benedict Canyon on a hill, And uh, the group got there probably around 11 o'clock and Tex Watson climbed the telephone pole and cut down some of the wires uh, and successfully cut off the phone service to the house, not the electricity. And then um, they uh, climbed up an embankment and were just approaching the house with, you know, they only had, you know, three knives and a gun that was hardly working, which is strange because they had no idea how many people they were going to encounter. And it was, again, three women and one man. Um, But as they were approaching, a white Ambassador Rambler car came out, and it was the 18-year-old Stephen Parent. And Watson went up to the window, stopped the car, and shot Parent to death as he begged for his life parent was leaving the caretaker's house, a guest house in the back who he had visited, now we're at about midnight, uh, nobody heard the shun- gunshots, at least not in the Tate house, um, and or actually Garrison, Steven, uh, Bill Garrison who was in the caretaker's house who survived said he didn't hear anything, uh, and then the group uh, broke into the Tate house and famously the first person to encounter them was Wojciech Farkowski, um, Roman's friend from Poland, who was asleep on the couch and woke up and saw Watson and said, who are you, and Watson said, uh, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. So the girls were sent to the various parts of the house to see who else was there and they each brought out uh, Abigail Folger, uh, Jay Sebring and Sharon from the bedrooms by knife and Sharon was in her, um, her, I guess, negligee panties, and, uh, Abigail was in a nightgown, and Jay Sebring was dressed. He was having a beer, talking to Sharon, presumably before he went home to his house. Uh, there are rumors, people that believe that they had resumed their love affair. Uh, Roman had been gone for months in the UK, but I don't don't know whether that's true or not, but, um... The group was rounded up in the living room of the house and obviously they were pretty hysterical you have to remember Sharon was about eight and a half months pregnant and they're like, what are you going to do, what are you going to do to us and that's when, well they threw a rope around Sharon's neck and um, Jay's neck and Abigail's and they hoisted it over a beam and tied it so that if they tried to move they could strangle themselves. Uh, Abigail started to free herself and at the same time Jay made a lunge for Watson and text Watson and Watson shot Jay Sharon screamed, Abigail screamed and ran Wojciech jumped on Watson, they struggled for the gun and then it was just like nobody's really sure what happened next, Abigail was out on the lawn, Patricia Kremlickle caught up with her and stabbed her. I don't have the figures at in my, in my fingertips, but I think Abigail was stabbed about 40 times. Uh, she finally shouted out, stop, stop, I'm already dead. Uh, and then um, Wojciech was beaten over the, the, the gun was broken, Wojcik was beaten over the head with the butt of the gun uh, and stabbed numerous times, got up, got out of the house, and then was attacked by Watson and Kramwinkel again and killed out in the front lawn. Uh, And then they went back and Sharon, if the story is true, and this is the story the killers ended up telling after they were convicted. um, And their version is the only version we have because they were the only witnesses. Uh, Whichever version is true, it seems to be that Sharon was the last one killed. And Atkins had a knife to her and Sharon was begging for the life of her baby and saying, just let me have my baby, let me have my baby, and then you can do whatever you want to me. And Atkins said, we don't care about your baby woman or something like that. And there's a couple versions. Supposedly Atkins first said that she started stabbing Sharon. She later said she only held her while Watson stabbed her. But the end result was Sharon was stabbed 13 times. And um, then the group left the house probably about one in the morning and the bodies were discovered the next morning about 8.30 by the maid who arrived for work. So it was a pretty horrible night Night there.
0: Yeah, and according to our first podcast guest, Tex went on to find religion in prison and had a wife and I think maybe he even said he had kids and stuff. Four know, children. Good Four grief. Children. Yeah. Wow.
1: Well that, Wait, I mean, that was something, uh, I don't know if they have them in Britain, conjugal visits for prisoners? Not anymore. Yeah, well, they have them here and uh, when uh, Tex had four kids, another family member, Bruce Davis, had a few kids. Um, I feel like somebody, none of the women had kids in prison. But anyway, Doris Tate, who was Sharon Tate's mother, you know, was for 10, I think 10 or 15 years, she was like a zombie, according. I'm friends with her daughter, Sharon's sister, Deborah. She basically didn't leave the house. You know, she was just so traumatized and grief-stricken. And then all of a sudden she found a cause, which was the first thing was to stop the conjugal visits. So she had a campaign, went to the state legislature and had them removed. Uh, I think people can have conjugal visits, but I know that convicted murderers can't. Uh, So that was her doing. And then she stiffened the parole laws. and then, you know, started an advocacy group to to keep the family members behind bars. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, that your first, what was your first guest's name? The one that had met Watson in prison?
0: Yeah, Jamie Morgan Cain. He served 34 years in the California prison system. And and what's his, uh, what's
1: he doing now? Is he uh, uh, writing a book about it? Or
0: Yeah, he's written his first book. And he's got his second one coming out. And he found out while he was in prison in America that he'd actually been born on the Isle of Man, hmm. so, sold to an American family as a baby, didn't even know he was a citizen of this country. So when he finished his sentence, he was deported back to London where he didn't know anybody. Really? Yeah. Uh, um, he
1: was dep- he, he was paroled or, or he finished 34 years? What was his crime?
0: Well, he, In his story he came home one day there was a corpse in the living room and his wife and her friend were in a conspiracy to poison this guy now they were up for the death penalty so the prosecutor said to to Jamie that if you um, man up and admit you did this we'll only give you I think I think they said something like 12 years and we'll let her you'll we'll let your wife go so he naively uh, believed all of this signed the plea bargain his wife got off, dumped him after a year, and as politics and governors changed and sentencing changed, he ended up serving 34 years.
1: Wow, I'll have to look that up. I can see your podcast. I guess is is it still on there? Yes, yeah, it the that was cool? It's the first
0: one. Yeah, yeah.
1: And what did what did he say about Watson? Did he have, did he have a friendship with him, or he just
0: like? Oh, uh, he's got. He had a lot to say about Watson. He had a lot of interactions with him. He yeah. had um, some beefs with him. And he describes how when Watson arrived at one prison, that the guard just dumped all of his property on the floor and trampled on it and were disgusted with him. And then he describes about Watson finding religion. And he also had interactions with the other guy you just mentioned that was in the family as well. Bruce so Davis? Yes, yeah. He yeah. met he met Manson, but he had quite a few interactions with the other two.
1: Huh. Yeah. Did he think they were rehabilitated or did he think that Jesus thing? Because Bruce Davis is also... A Christian he's a, a reverend now um, and they're both you know still trying to get paroled. did he say what he thought uh, whether he thought they were genuine Christians or he thought they were playing the Jesus card yeah I don't know I mean I've actually interviewed Davis in prison Watson wouldn't meet with me unless uh, I limited my questions to the Bible and you know I could have gone in there anyway and and started talking about Jesus and then the crimes but I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. I felt like that was, you know, you do that once and then people, the word gets out, nobody's going to trust you. So instead I thought I could persuade him to talk to me about the case, but I was wrong. I, I couldn't. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I've got a lot of evidence that the whole Jesus thing was and is an act. And, um, you know, I don't want to go too much into the book because I don't want to bore your listeners, but the book ends with me... Trying discovering these audio tapes um, of Watson uh, that, that were made by his attorney before any of them were identified as the killers publicly. Uh, Watson turned himself in when he was a suspect and I think it was a day after Thanksgiving 1969 and his attorney from his hometown said, I want you to put everything on tape And uh, he recorded him for, the the versions differ, either eight hours or 20 hours. And as the attorney told me, you know, decades later when I interviewed him, um, Watson described the murders in graphic detail. And he also described other people who had been killed by the Manson family who would never been discovered. And the book kind of ends with me writing about that discovery. And I really wanted those tapes because... Number one, I thought it's important if there's other people out there who are buried places or who knows where and their families don't know what happened to them and they think they were runaways or something when they were actually killed. And also number two, it was the first version of the murders told on tape by one of the killers before the prosecutors started manipulating everything. And ironically, well, the attorney then promised me that he would try to get Watson to let me listen to them then they wouldn't let me listen to them. Long story short, the attorney died. I started my own effort to get the tapes. They had gone into a bankruptcy court because the attorney's firm had gone bankrupt and the trustee had them. And she was just about to release them to me. And I had told her that one of the deputy DAs who handled the Manson paroles um, thought she should release them because she was conflicted about it because, you know, there are all these questions of confidentiality and privilege. And she said, let me just talk to him first and if he really thinks it's okay for me to give them to you, I will. And that was my mistake because the minute they started talking, she decided to give them to him. The DA's office got them and then locked them down and to this day, they won't, won't release these tapes. And I went to Watson's attorney, and I said, you know, if he's really a Christian, as he professes to be, then I think it would be his Christian duty to relieve, you know, the pain and anguish of people who lost, you know, children, siblings, or whatever, more than 50 years ago, at the hands of the family. And if he has that information, and he's not going to come forth with it, I said, that's a real, uh, it raises questions about his devotion to his faith. Um, But, yeah, I had other information from people in the prison too that Watson is not the angelic figure he presents himself to be. No, a lot of people do that when they
0: get uh, caught for such heinous crimes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, you described these grotesque things. Um, Before we get to the second night in more detail then, does researching this dark matter affect you psychologically?
1: Uh Yes and no. I mean, for me, it was an ordeal, mostly because I was finding out so much information that shocked me, not necessarily, you know, about the murders and the crimes, but about the corruption of my own government. Uh, You know, the the prosecutor's office here in Los Angeles, the police department, sheriff's office. And, you know, you lose faith. And I, I was never naive, and I was always questioning authority. But the extent that these people went to, to cover up information that didn't serve their purposes, was much more uh, extreme and, uh, and and pervasive than I had ever ever would have suspected. So that has an impact on your kind of how you how you look at the world around you, and the the actual murders and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, the hardest thing is talking to the relatives of the victims. You know, I became friendly with most of the people who I was writing about who died, they're siblings, uh, in some of the cases they're parents who are still alive, uh, and, and that's tough and you realize these people have to live with this for decades and uh, the idea, especially, you know, someone like Sharon who's pregnant, the idea that, you know, the way she died, you know, begging for the life of her baby, that, that can give you nightmares and stuff but, you know, I'm distant you know i it's these aren't people i knew or were friends of mine luckily knock on wood that hasn't happened in my circle of friends or family but uh yeah there are dark moments plus i mean having cops threaten you and, and buliosi it's its in the book Buliosi was threatening to smear me with false information and um sue me I and mean, i got lots of lawsuit threats that can kind of impact your psyche. But at the same time it also gives you more fuel to keep going. Cause when people behave like that, then you know you're on to something. So yeah. I think the the benefits outweighed uh, the you know the cost.
0: Yeah, I know what you're saying. I've written the longest ever book about Pablo Escobar. It's like a four book series. Really? Um, huh? And I just got contacted by the son whose parents run avianca flight that Pablo Escobar blew out of the sky oh wow yeah so you really feel uh for yeah. these people it's it's what horrendous a
1: book
0: it's a four book a series called Pablo Escobar's story part three is just getting published presently it should be available this this week uh, available worldwide on Amazon and then there's going to be one more one more installment coming out hopefully this year
1: how many years have you been working on it
0: I'm not as long as you on yours I've been working on it what happened was I think about five or six years ago I had a book out called um, Pablo Escobar Beyond Narcos mm-hmm. um, maybe a bit more recent than that, I'm not 100% sure so I was doing talks on Pablo and a woman come up to me in London from Colombia and she said look there's way more available in the Spanish speaking world than you've been telling us this evening so as a perfectionist yeah. I, I tracked down then all the books that have been written in Spanish by people who knew Pablo, who'd worked for Pablo, his lover, his main mistress, Virginia Vallejo, his wife, his hitman. All this stuff in the Western-speaking world had been written by journalists who had an agenda, you yeah. know, to put the DA in a good light. They go in and kick the bad guys' ass. Right, but, right. But, but when it came down to it, the role of the CIA in all of this just like you found out the role of the CIA in your life's work,
1: mm-hmm. it completely changes your worldview. Did you try to get anything from the CIA, any documents or? No, I didn't because all that all their
0: propaganda was already. Um, and they're, the, not gonna, they're not
1: going to they're not going to give you anything anyway.
0: No, no. Yeah. I was supposed to interview Juan Pablo Pablo Escobar's son in London, but um, they wouldn't let him in the country. Mm-hmm. Could you go to? <laughs> where is he? Um, He was in Argentina, I'm not sure where he is presently,
1: Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to look it up, I mean that's, I thought I spent too much time on one subject, I'm pretty amazed, you're going to get four, have you written the fourth book yet or you're working on it? There's about, it's going to be about 90,000
0: words and I think I've got about 50,000 right now. And, that, and you're
1: sure that'll be the last one the final Yeah, I'm done
0: with it. I'm done with it. Um, <laughs> I've been f- focusing on one subject for so long.
1: Yeah, I know. Believe me. I just, when, I finished, yeah. when I finished this, I really didn't ever want to think about Manson again. But as soon as the book came out and I relaxed a little bit, you know, the hardcover came out last summer. The paper, Actually, over there, I think the paperback came out a month or two ago. But I thought I'd be done with it. And sure enough, I just there's so many little loose ends and I've gotten more information. I mean, that's a good thing about the publicity, especially Joe Rogan, which kind of changed the whole trajectory because this guy, I, I mean, I've heard of him and I the reason I got on was we have a mutual friend who told him, you, you got to put me on. But I had no idea about his influence, not only over here, but evidently over where you guys are. Um, and the good thing of that is I get so many emails. I mean, it's a pain in the ass because ninety percent of them are lunatics, you know, telling you theories and just wanting to, but share information. But like one out of a hundred, like maybe one a week, I get is actually something worth following up. So now I'm I'm looking into this other aspects of this that I had kind of started and stopped, and I'm thinking, God, I have to write one more book on it. But I'm hoping not to do four. <laughs> You'll probably get a few emails from my viewers as
0: well. Good, Could, good. And, and my viewers are obsessed with the darkest content, so are you okay to take
1: us through what happened the next night? Okay, all right. Oh, yeah, you mean now? Yes, please. Okay, yeah. So um, the next day, uh, the 10th, Manson uh, got a group, went into the car. They had a, a car that they used at the ranch, and he was driving, uh, and it was. The people from the last night who were there were Lynica Sabian, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, him and Watson, and then an additional woman, Leslie Van Houten, went with them. And they were packed in this car and they drove around West Hollywood, um, East Hollywood uh, for hours. Uh, And again, we don't know what the truth is about why they were spending so much time just aimlessly driving around until they finally picked the house. But uh, whatever the case, they went to a house in the section of town called Los Viles, which is in eastern, just east of Hollywood, and it's pretty affluent. And Manson, again, this is the official version, left the group in the car, walked up a driveway towards this one house that they had known because they'd been there to party with a guy who lived there, a guy named Harold True. But Harold True had left and moved out. And Manson's started towards that driveway and then veered to his left and disappeared for I think they said as long as it took to to smoke a cigarette, then came back and they said that because Linda Kasabian said she had had a cigarette from the time he left and had just finished it when he came back and he told them that he had tied up a couple in the house and they should go in and do what they did the night before but not make it so messy. And he sent in Watson, Krenwinkel, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. Uh, Again, they had no gun. I think one of them had a knife. Uh, The questions that are raised is how did Manson tie up a couple alone, unless that's not the true story. I won't get into the details of why that raises questions about everything that happened that night. Regardless, those three people then went into the house, got knives from the kitchen, and slaughtered the couple. They killed Lino first, and they had taken Rosemary, and two, the two women took Rosemary into her bedroom. And when she heard Lino screaming when, when Watson was stabbing him to death, she got up, and they had put a hood, a pillowcase over her, her head, and they had tied her hands or they had put a lamp cord around her neck and she started whipping the lamp around, she couldn't see where they were trying to get to her husband and they just started stabbing her and then Watson came in and they were each stabbed I think more than 30 or 40 times and then uh, a couple of them took showers, they ate ice cream in the kitchen put the blood writing on the wall and they didn't even have manson didn't even leave a car for them they had to hitchhike back to the spawn ranch and that was supposed to be the second night that caused this race war but it didn't the police never suspected african americans blacks black panthers so that's again it's all laid out in the book why why i raise questions about um the validity of the race war motive for the murders but um the family was free for another uh, till mid-October. They moved out to the Barker and Myers ranches, which were in Death Valley, um, it, 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 it a pretty remote area, really. I actually went to Barker Ranch for the first time this past fall, and I was amazed at how hard it was to get there. It's at the top of a mountain in the desert, and you have to go through all these switchbacks and some of the it's so narrow you can't you can't walk up there it's too far i mean you could but it would take you a few days and you can't go unless you have like a i'm not an automobile guy but i think it's called a four-wheel or no something about these jeeps with big tires that can go over boulders it has to be one of those i went out with a bunch of retired sheriffs who wanted to show it to me and um that's where they were ultimately captured in, in mid-october and um brought back to Los Angeles, the ones who were tried for the Tate LaBianca murders and convicted over the next year and a half or so. And what was then the trial of of the century because of the media attention and the antics of the family who turned the whole thing into a circus. You know, they would laugh and the girls would skip and dance their way in and out of the courtroom. They'd scream at the judge. They'd scream at the jury. Manson actually dove at the judge once with a pencil he grabbed to try to stab him. Um, And Manson shaved his head, and then the girls shaved their heads. Manson carved an X into his forehead. The girls carved an X into their forehead. It was pretty crazy. And outside, their supporters, the remnants of the family, which numbered, again, anywhere between 10 and 20 or so people, also shaved their heads and put X's on their foreheads, and they held vigil outside the courthouse every day and at one point the women crawled on their hands and knees from West Hollywood to the courthouse, I think that took a whole day, Uh, I mean it was a pretty crazy time in Los Angeles. How did the lawyers react to them behaving like that in court? Uh, Well the defense attorneys for them, Manson famously said I want the worst defense attorney in Los Angeles, he wanted to defend himself and they wouldn't let him, so he got Irving Kinnerick who was probably schizophrenic. Irving Kinnerick was actually pretty bright but he was really nuts. Uh, and the, they had Paul Fitzgerald and Day Shen and, and a guy named Ron Hughes. They were all good attorneys but um, Manson controlled everything and since they were tried as a group, um, Manson told the girls that they didn't want to put up a defense. So once the prosecution rested, you know, in the United States, first the prosecution presents its case and then the defense does, Um, the defense rested. In fact, uh, it was so shocking to everyone that the court declared that they needed two or three days of a break. I think he wanted them to reconsider. Um, And during those three days, Leslie Van Houten's attorney, Ron Hughes, disappeared and... um, His body was found, I think, months later. uh, And people thought that he was killed by the Manson family because he was the one who told the judge when the defense rested, I don't agree with my client. I want to present a defense. My hands are tied. Is there something we can do? And the next day he went hiking in Ventura County and never came back. I'm pretty certain, there have been a lot of investigations of it, that he, he was an overweight man and what it looks like is he fell in a stream. There had been flooding and hit his head and drowned. But, you know, I keep my mind open at this point. Um, but they had to get her a new lawyer, and they actually had to delay the trial longer until she hired a, a new attorney. And the attorneys, you know, there wasn't anything they could do without putting on a defense except, you know, still trying to get them uh life sentences instead of death sentences, but they lost that, you know, there was a death penalty phase. They all got, uh, you know, death sentences, but then in the 70s, the State Supreme Court of California ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional, so all of their death sentences were commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole, and that's why they still get parole hearings. You know, there's Atkins is dead, um, uh, Manson's dead, but... Bruce Davis, Bobby Beausoleil, Patricia Krumwinkle, Leslie Van Houten and Tex Watson still have parole hearings sometimes more than once a year. How long was it before the women started to show remorse? I think it was a good five years. You know, they actually kept them locked up together because they didn't want them, you know, interacting with the rest of the population at the women's prison. And because they kept them together, it was easier for them to live in this delusional world where they still thought that everything they had done was right. And I truly believe that they did think it was right. But it wasn't until about four or five years later that one by one, they started kind of, you know, snapping out of it. And there was a psychologist who wrote a book about helping them through that process. Her name was Carleen Faith. And it was a movie that was made uh, about her you know, rehabilitating the women's minds in prison, kind of deprogramming them. It came out last year. I still haven't seen it. I think it's called Charlie Says. Uh, I did interview her. She died a long time ago, but it's, it's based on her book. So you said the prosecutors had an agenda and they steered it in a certain way and there was things hidden? Yeah, well, I mean, the prosecution, and this I think is one of the most important findings of my investigation, they poisoned the well. They cheated because... Susan Atkins, uh, who was, you know, who first claimed to be the one who stabbed Sharon Tate to death, but who was there for those murders. She actually wasn't present in the Bianca house when those murders happened. She left with Charlie before, uh, but she was also present at Hinman and participated in that murder. She was the first person who um, was going to be charged with the the Tate-LaBianca murders Uh, she had been telling cellmates, she was in jail on on another crime, and she told these cellmates that they had done these murders. And at first the cellmates didn't believe it, but then they went to the authorities, and they went in, the authorities questioned Atkins. So Atkins was going to be charged. She had a a court-appointed defense attorney, because she didn't have any money, um, and he was going to represent her on the Hinman murder which they hadn't connected to Tate and LaBianca uh, but she was about to be charged for that and what I found when I got access to the these files that no journalist had ever seen was once they realized that Atkins was telling the truth to her cellmates that she really did participate and that this group that was still at large then had well actually they were in jail but for car theft in, in the desert not for murder. Uh, but that they had been the ones they'd been searching for it for three months. This was the biggest manhunt, you know, in California history up to that point, who who killed, you know, these seven or nine people. Um, once they realized that Atkins was involved, the prosecutors had a meeting, and they said, we've got to get rid of her court-appointed defense attorney and get someone sympathetic to us. So they illegally went to the judge and asked the judge to remove a guy named Gerald Condon from Susan's case and replace him with a guy named Richard Caballero who had just left the prosecutor's office. He was part of their team for like 10 years. He had just gone into criminal defense. And without Atkins' knowledge or her lawyer's knowledge, the judges arbitrarily took him off the case and said he was replacing him with Richard Caballero Now, if that had come out at the time, that would have caused the mistrial for everything that followed after because uh, the prosecution can't handpick a defendant's attorney without their knowledge. Um, That's, you know, not a level deck. Um, When I found that out, that was one of my early big discoveries. Then I knew not to trust anything that happened uh, after that, you know, because once Atkins didn't have her best interests. It was the prosecution's best interest. She didn't know that, you, you know, she'd been set up like that. We don't know how she was manipulated. She provided the first account of how and why the murders happened that was able to get the grand jury indictments. But once they had a prosecutor secretly inserted into her as her defense attorney, then we can assume that everything that happened since then wasn't for her defense, which every American citizen is entitled to, but rather for the prosecution to get their convictions. So uh, at that point, I think the whole prosecution, I think when my book came out, I think all those guys should have gotten new trials because I've got these actual documents. I write about them in the book and then I have the references and they know where they are in their own files. But Susan Atkins isn't alive to do anything about it herself now. And the other defendants don't want to raise those kind of issues because they're saying they're rehabilitated, they're cooperative, and if it looks like now they're going to complain about the process from 50 years ago, even though they admitted the murders, it would not it it'll look like they're not rehabilitated.
0: So you've described the official narrative, the race war motive, and you have said in uh, one of the interviews that Manson wasn't taking drugs, he was pretending to take drugs or minimizing his drug intake and pumping the family full of drugs and pumping yeah. the family full of this official narrative. Why do you think the murders really happened?
1: Well that's it as I've said in some of the other podcasts in the books, I present a couple different scenarios, a drug deal gone wrong where some of the people at the Tate house who were killed, namely Wojciech Vakowski was selling drugs and had burned some people Uh, and Tex Watson was involved in that. Uh, That's one scenario. The other one is, this is hard to get into, uh, but something called COINTELPRO uh, and CHAOS, these two uh, efforts by the United States government to uh, spread disinformation out about the left-wing movement and tar hippies and liberals as actual uh criminals and and and, uh dangerous because to get into the whole climate of what was happening in 1969 in america we were in the vietnam war uh lyndon johnson had just chosen not to run again because he couldn't figure out how to stop what he saw as a coming revolution richard nixon our law and order president our first one before the clown we have now he got in there and was cracking down with edgar hoover and the cia on the hippies and the uh, anti-left-wing protesters. And um, I don't want to get into that because it would take me 15 minutes to set it all up, but that's kind of the second theory that that this was done. Manson was provoked by the same people who were handling him all this time to actually get these murders committed to send the same kind of message that the historical version you know smearing the panthers but but smearing the whole group and it, it sounds crazy without context but if your listeners read the book i hope they'll understand it and say yeah it could have been that too definitely but my, own my listeners are really into this kind of theory oh good oh, good, good yeah because i mean there's so much shorthand that i have to say and i you know, I, I constantly get reminded by people that, you know, if you didn't live through this period, you're not going to know what COINTELPRO or CHAOS or MK Ultra were or uh, even people who lived through it, you know. It, it wasn't really heavily reported, but again, it's in the footnotes of the book. I have all the documents of congressional hearings that happened afterward that exposed it and show the links the government went to cover it up and destroy the records. Um, I'm not comfortable saying what I really think happened because frankly I'm still not I still haven't figured it out. I only know that it didn't happen the way we were told it happened and for the reasons we were told it happened. So your theory, one of your theories is that the US government then,
0: by handling Manson, led to these heinous crimes which they used for their own purposes.
1: Yeah. Thank you. That's good.
0: Okay. Do you think that the U.S. government is still engaged in this kind of behavior, particularly relevant with BLM?
1: Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I've been getting asked that, you know, especially in the last six weeks or so. Um, oh, let's just say I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are agitators out there who are um, trying to provoke the looting, and, and and highlighting the violence, and yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how organized it is, but nothing would surprise me at all. Uh, I mean, this was going on in the 60s and early 70s in the United States. Um, the, the cops and, and, and the feds were planting people in, in the left-wing movement, in, in, in the Panthers, and trying to get them to commit crimes that they could then later arrest them for, they also and this is all spelled out in the book particularly the COINTELPRO which was the FBI organization they infiltrated Panthers and black militant groups uh, and got them to kill each other by provoking them saying this person's about to kill you and the the FBI admitted to all this when it all came out in the 70s. I think they admitted to somewhere around 20 or causing 20 or 25 deaths um, that were basically engineered by their own agents who had infiltrated the groups. Um, so is it happening again? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. And I mean, I, after the last three years, nothing surprises me anymore in the United States because every day it's a new kind of, uh, uh, you just, I, don't, I know you guys followed over there. I know you've got some similar stuff going on, but you just can't believe what, how the country changes day to day here.
0: Just got a few more questions then before we round up. Um, do you believe that the experiments that were done on the Unibomber at Harvard led to creating a monster?
1: You know, I stayed away from that. Um, and my excuse for staying away w- from it was I really tried to stay within the decade of the 60s. And I know very little about. Ted Kaczynski and what happened to him and that's been deliberate I had too much information from my book we had to leave so much out and while it's probably relevant if it's true it's the kind of thing like I thought if I go down that path and I'm going to want to do my own original reporting instead of taking 20 years which my book took it would have taken me an additional 20 years and my book literally ends at like 1970 Um, it's the kind of thing that I keep thinking all right, I'm going to start picking up some books about the Unabomber and seeing what's out there because everybody the emails I get now or even since a year ago since the book came out it's Jeffrey Epstein the Unabomber I mean those are the two things that people are most curious about and I actually had some sources on the Epstein thing who, who came to me before he committed suicide or was murdered with information, and they said that that was exactly what was going to happen, and this was before it, and this is a couple of journalists who are elderly and and infirm, and but they've been covering this all their lives, and they wanted me to do the legwork for them, but it was right before my book was coming out last summer, and I said, I just can't do it now. That's something I kind of regret, but I'm going to as soon as I have a chance, make a decision to either look at Epstein or look at uh, the Unabomber information out there and go down that hole. I just don't want to lose another 20 years of my life.
0: Well, if you need to look at Epstein, I've done 300 videos on the Epstein case on my channel. Oh, really? My book that came out at Christmas is called Clinton, Bush and CIA Conspiracies from the Boys on the Tracks of Jeffrey Epstein. And I'm
1: writing a book called Who Killed Epstein? How do you have time to sleep? I mean, it took me twenty years to write one book. It sounds like you put them out once a month. And, and it's all your
0: <laughs> they, call,
1: they call me the robot. <laughs> yeah, I got I'm sorry, I should have done a little bit more research into you, because it sounds like you're doing stuff that we could probably help each other out. It took me ten years to write my life story as a trilogy,
0: but once I started to discover dictation software, I can now write
1: three books a year using Dragon Dictation software. How do you edit? So you you talk your books into your into your computer and yes. then you go back and edit them? Yeah, exactly. Or send it off to an editor. I I always thought of trying that, but I feel like I have to see my words. Maybe maybe that would help. Maybe I'll try that. Yeah, just go, let the editor do it and then see your words and it'll all be nice and polished <laughs> and less stress and less time. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. I'm like, wow, it's, not, it's time to rethink that. Before when I thought about it five or ten years ago, I was always told the software wasn't good enough and it was going to get most of your words wrong. But now I can tell just by my phone and stuff, it's pretty good once it recognizes your voice. It is, it's pretty good. All right, one final question then. Um, closer to your time zone, Saran Saran. Oh, what about Sirhan Sirhan? Yeah, what about him? Thoughts on Sirhan Sirhan? Oh, God. Well, I'm actually going to meet with Robert F. Kennedy III, so Robert Kennedy's grandson on Thursday, who's reached out to me. Um, his father, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has now famously, about a year ago, gone public and said he and several other people in the family believe that Sirhan was a patsy that he was brainwashed by the same program that, you know, I write about in my Manson book. Uh, and I had, uh, you know, a couple chapters worth of material. Oh, he saw uh, Bobby the Third. I actually met him for the first time at his cousin's funeral. You know, one of the cousins died of an overdose last summer. And my friend um, was this poor woman's godmother. And she brought me to Hyannisport. So I met the family and I I sat with Ethel in her living room the third night after the funeral and had wine alone with her but you know I wasn't about to tell her I'd spent three years trying to figure out what happened to her husband because it wasn't appropriate so I was surprised about a week ago to get an email from Robert Kennedy the third saying he wanted to meet with me to talk about what I have on Sirhan so I'm gonna see him Thursday Uh, I you know the same cops that investigated the Sharon Tate murders, and the same prosecutors that prosecuted it, the same court system, similar judges. The the Serhan murder was a year before Tate. It was June of 68. Tate was August 69. And a lot of the same stuff that happened in the Manson case as far as lying and cheating and not giving the world the fair trial it deserved to see if Serhan didn't happen. I'm not the first one to say that. I've got a little bit of new information that I think is compelling. I've shared it with Sirhan's attorneys, and uh, the last one was going to use it to get an evidentiary hearing, but then he couldn't even get, he couldn't get the evidentiary hearing. So I think, um, we'll see. I mean, I'm hoping that the the Kennedy family, if they truly want to get more involved in this, they've got the means and the wherewithal to raise you know the profile of this because I don't think Sirhan knew what he was doing in the pantry that night and uh, I don't think yeah I think it's actually a lot easier to prove that than what I have number one because he's still alive and number two I know where a lot of that evidence is and that's something I can help these people with if, if that's why they want to meet with me we'll see
0: Well really appreciate your time Tom it's been absolutely fascinating People are going to want to click down, I'm sure, and check your book out and go on your socials. Do you have a preferred means of
1: people contacting you? Yeah, I mean I have um, a a website, it's it's my name, if you just Google Tom O'Neill and Manson or WordPress, that's got my email address, they can email me directly. Uh, But the things I I, I want people to look at the most are uh, my Instagram page, and or my Facebook page, because I actually put up a lot of the documents that we couldn't reproduce in the book, so if they read the book and they're like, oh, I'd love to see these letters from Jolly West, the uh, MK Ultra Psychiatrist, describing his experiments with Sidney Gottlieb, the head of the program, you can go to those um, my Instagram or Facebook and see those documents. I also have audio tape expert excerpts of interviews with Manson that I conducted with uh, Vince Bugliosi, uh, some of the characters in the book and I'm trying to put more and more of that stuff online because I just don't want anyone to doubt what I found out and I feel like I should put up as much of my documents and proofs as I can I'm still kind of not the best at the technology I'm learning as I go along but I think there's some good stuff on those
0: two pages You're certainly good at notes. 60 pages of notes in a 506 page
1: book. (laughs) I I had 120 uh, pages originally. They were only going to give me 10, I think, and then I ended up, the negotiation got 60. I was happy with the 60, but oh boy. Yes, if you
0: can email me over those links for your website, Facebook, Instagram, I'll put all those in the description box and and people will check those out. And people watching this, if you could please. Put in the comments below what you thought about today's video we would really appreciate your feedback so thank you very much for watching and thank you much for your time tom
1: thank you sean i enjoyed it
0: cheers me too
1: all right bye-bye